Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. All right, we are live. After a little bit of technical difficulties there, historians are not the best people with technology, but we are live here with our Weekly Sunday Rev War Happy Hour. Uh, I am Rob Orson with the Emerging Revolutionary War. We have a smaller group tonight. Um, Mark Malloy and Phil Greenwald are probably asleep somewhere in Florida and Alexandria. But tonight, we're doing something a little different. Um, we are interviewing uh, one of our authors. We have, as many of you all know, we have a book series. Uh, we have two titles that came out two years ago. Uh, a title that I wrote with Phil Greenwald on Lexington and Concord called A Single Blow. Then Mark Malloy's title called um, victory or death in the Battle of Trenton, but our book series is launch, relaunching this year uh, with a book about Monmouth Courthouse, and our guest tonight is ERW member, there it is, A Handsome Flogging. I'm glad you put that up there in case I forgot the name. Uh, Billy Griffith is the author, and tonight we're going to uh, chat a little bit about the book, about his experience writing the book, his experience uh, growing up in New Jersey, and also promote the fact that the book is now for sale at the Savvy Speedy website. It will be for sale on Amazon on July 31st, but if you click on our Facebook link, you'll see a link right to Savvy Speedy, and you can purchase the book there. Uh, so we'll go ahead and get started. Thank you, Billy, for joining us. Uh, Billy's been giving tours all day at Gettysburg, so he's probably a little worn out, so we won't keep him too long tonight. But just kind of start off a little bit about this book, Billy. So what, what drew you to write this book? Um, well, being from New Jersey, that's obviously it's known as like the cockpit or crossroads of the revolution. So basically every corner you turn, there's something that is associated with that period in our history. And uh, Monmouth was a battlefield that I would visit when I was younger, but it's a battlefield that I knew of, but didn't know too much about. A lot of people, I think when it comes to the Battle of Monmouth, they just know the basic overview, what happened. It was a hot day, you know, generally doesn't command troops anymore after the battle, and it is a tactical victory for the Continental Army. Um, so when I was asked by you guys, an idea was pitched to have about write a book about the Battle of Monmouth. I was really interested in, in writing it more as a project so I could learn more about it too and, and study the, the people 
um, in the ground itself, the battlefield, because as some of you might know who have read um, either Phil and, and uh, Rob's book or Mark's book, our books really focus more on place rather than being specific in-depth histories of the battle. You can find those elsewhere. And in regard to the Battle of Monmouth, I would say if you're interested in, in what is the best book on it, it would be this one that was released several years ago um, by Gary Stone and Mark Edward Blender. This is by far the definitive study on the Battle of Monmouth in the campaign. Uh, so if you are interested in a detailed study, go for this. If you're interested in a more uh, introductive study and a guidebook for yourself to be using while you're out on the field or tracing the routes traveled by the uh, British and American armies, and, and that's what this book really is. Filled with over 150 pictures, uh, 10 maps done by Edward Alexander, who does a great job. Um, so this, I think it's, it's the only really kind of book like this dedicated to uh, as a guidebook for the Monmouth campaign. And there are some great trails on the battlefield too. Yeah, you brought up a good point. Um, a couple of years ago, I was up there for the very first time with Bert Dunkerley, Mark Wilcox, and a few other ERW people. And um, it's a it's a well-preserved battlefield, but it's very hard to get around. Um, John Reese, who is speaking for us next year at the symposium, is a, is a Monmouth expert. And he was Facebook chatting me all the places to go to see. And I remember saying there needs to be uh, a guidebook or an ERW book about this battle and this campaign. And so... Uh, having already read the book and like you said matt uh edwards maps are fantastic so um it definitely fills in my opinion a hole uh, not just in the scholarship but also in the ability for people to go visit the place uh, which is as you said so much part of what we do at erw is to take people to these locations so they can get the power of place um so i have a couple of questions here uh, a few of us got together virtually today and came with some questions for billy i will watch the chat over here um, let see if anyone else asks questions, except for Mark Malloy. If you ask a question, Mark, we're not going to ask it. I already see Mark's chiming in over here. Um, but as far as the Battle of Monmouth goes, what do you think is the most important part of that battle as far as its impact in the, in the entire war? Um, well, strategically speaking, there was absolutely no impact whatsoever <laughs> uh, as a result of this battle. It is a tactical victory. I think more on, rather than the physical plane, on the moral plane especially for the Continental Army, this is a huge victory. Because for really one of the first times in the entire war up to that point, uh, they've seen the backs of the British Army as Henry Clinton's men are forced to relinquish the ground that they fought over for pretty much the entire day on June 28, 1778. But as for Clinton and the British perspective, the whole purpose that why there's a battle being fought at Monmouth is because uh, the French have joined the war now, uh, full military support for the Continentals, uh, the Americans, and... Because of this, um, the Americans essentially become like a secondary foe to the British in this now developing world war. So Philadelphia, uh, which was captured the previous year in 1777 by the British, um, it really serves them no purpose to hold on to now. They're trying to consolidate their forces right along the eastern shore to guard uh, key harbors like in New York City so they could um, keep troops being funneled into the colonies as well as to funnel those troops elsewhere, especially in the Caribbean where there's a possible French threat that some of those British sugar islands could be conquered. Um, so Henry Clinton with about 20,000 combatants and non-combatants is going to begin uh, leaving Philadelphia, crossing the Delaware River on June 1st. And by June 17th or so, um, he's gonna be ha have his full army across the river and moving them up over New Jersey 
to get to New York City. This is an overland march rather than traveling uh, via water on the Delaware River. So the Continental Army, freshly trained by Baron von Steuben in Valley Forge, surviving that awful winter where about one out of every four men who was there uh, either died of disease or whatnot, um, they are going to now launch a pursuit of the British Army, harassing them along their entire route across New Jersey before they can get to New York City and potentially fall upon them and engage them uh, in what could be a decisive battle. But by June 28th, uh, the British Army is leaving the village of Monmouth Courthouse, present-day Freehold, New Jersey, and the vanguard of the, of the Continental Army, about 4,500 men under the command of Major General Charles Lee, uh, is going to be put into the pursuit. They'll catch up with Clinton's rear guard, and the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse will begin. Uh, Clinton's going to turn some of his men around, pursue Lee. Lee's men fall back. Uh, Washington comes up with the main army. And the thing about Monmouth is it's described as the longest battle of the entire war. Uh, it really begins around 7, 7.30 in the morning and goes into almost 6 p.m. Um, so almost 12 hours of fighting. However, there really is only a few hours during that span of actual, you know, uh, close combat between these two forces. A lot of it is spent maneuvering, forming up positions, as well as there's a several hour artillery bombardment, um, the largest of the war by field artillery. So that's what's really difficult about studying the Battle of Monmouth is it's the chron chronology of it. Um, as well as just trying to get these firsthand accounts of what is happening and when it is happening, because it is such a long sustained conflict. But as I mentioned earlier, the, the strategic impact of it, it really is non-existent because Clinton's able to get his baggage train and the rest of his army away from Monmouth Courthouse, continue his advance to New York City, where he'll cross uh, and occupy that city for the remainder of the war. Tactically speaking, it is an American victory. Definitely, though. So we're already getting comments about the Charles Lee situation, <laughs> which is what most people know about Monmouth, right? Uh, you know, cursing to the uh, uh, shook the leaves in the tree. So let's go ahead and dive into that story. I know there's some a lot of myth around that story, and we've talked about it on previous uh, ERW happy hours here on Sundays. But um, kind of start from where what really happened there with Washington and Charles Lee, and then how that evolved into him leaving the army and, and of course being outcasted by the continental uh, leadership. Yeah, well, as I, I mentioned, Lee is going to be leading the vanguard of the continental army on the morning of June 28th. Uh, he's several miles ahead of Washington with the main body of the American army. So it's his job, or at least in Washington's mind, it is Lee's job to attack and pin Clinton's army down. So Washington can come up with the rest of the army and a, a main engagement can be fought. Uh, well, Lee, if you look at the actual primary sources and some of the testimony that will follow uh, during General Lee's court-martial in the wake of the battle, um, there's no actual evidence that Washington directly gave Lee's order, Lee orders to attack on the morning of June 28th. Um, so Lee is kind of going into this situation really blind and just trying to take things as they come along. Uh, but he will end up attacking uh, the rear guard of Clinton's army uh, and his men are gonna form up in position in a long line of battle. And for some reason, out of nowhere, his men just begin to retreat before they can directly engage the British. Um, there's a lot of controversy about why this happens. Obviously the blame fell upon Charles Lee's shoulders because he was the overall field commander there uh, at the time. But in reality, uh, it's most likely one of his brig 
Brigadier Generals, uh, that fails him. Brigadier General Charles Scott, who is commanding one of the, the picked men detachments, uh, he'll be formed up towards the left end of the, the American line. And for some reason, he sees some Continental artillery pulling back, and he thinks that's uh, that's basically noticed that the whole command is about to fall back in the wake of uh, the British turning their men around and heading towards their position. So Scotsmen will begin to fall back, and that's going to perpetuate a general retreat, not necessarily a route, but an organized retreat, as Lee's men are going to begin falling back uh, west towards uh, Englishtown, which had been their starting point that morning. Uh, and General Lee um, really doesn't know himself what is going on, but Je Washington, as he's beginning to arrive on the field, uh, he's just absolutely mind blown because in his his opinion, Lee was given full orders to attack that morning and Washington was expecting to come up, have the British pinned in place and be able to throw the bulk of his army at them and potentially get that decisive victory. Well, now Washington sees retreating men. So he's going to ride forward and he'll run into General Lee and Lee um, at this point. He thinks that he's about to get praise from Washington because he successfully got his men off of the field and not in a route. However, Washington doesn't see it this way. And he uh, later accounts would have him swearing until the leaves shook on trees. Uh, the Marquis de Lafayette even said that Charles Lee was called a damn poltroon by Washington. Um, now, these quotes are probably not accurate because the two men, Charles Scott and Lafayette, who uh, gave them us, uh, they weren't even present at that exact spot where this meeting takes place. In all reality, Washington um, basically tells Lee, if you weren't going to attack, you shouldn't have even given yourself this mission. You should have given it to someone else who would have been more aggressive. Um, but he'll, Washington will ride off and start rallying troops to kind of uh, form up a delaying action to buy him time for the rest of the army to form up a defensive line on some high ground known as Perrin Ridge. Um, myth has had had this that now Washington relieves Lee of command right on the spot, sends him to the rear, and that's the last we hear of him. Uh, that's not true because Washington will then return to Lee and ask him if he wants to stay in command of this um, delaying action or if he wants to go back to Perrin Ranch and form up this defensive line. Well, Lee will say he'll stay on this side of the field with his, van with his men, um, and Washington will ride off and form up that defensive line, and Lee is going to buy as much time as he possibly can for General Washington, and he'll succeed in doing so uh, at a bloody cost, though, for his command. But after that, Washington will send Lee to the rear uh, to Englishtown to reorganize his vanguard uh, or his advanced corps. And that will be the last we will hear of Lee, because for some reason that day, it seems as though the relationship between Lee and Washington is still OK at that point. It's tolerable. But during the afternoon, Washington's going to order Baron von Steuben to head to Englishtown and take command of Lee's advance corps. That effectively relieves Lee of command of his troops. And then after that, uh, all Lee had to do was really keep his mouth shut, but he feels that his honor, uh, it has <laughs> been slighted and he deserves a chance to speak for himself about what happened that morning. And he'll get in a little war of letters uh, between him and Washington and he's gonna run his mouth too much, offend Washington and he will be uh, court-martialed while the army is in New Brunswick on three accounts, basically just misbehavior before the enemy, uh, being the jerk to GW uh, and disobeying commands. And he's going to be found guilty in all three of those accounts and cashiered from the service for one year, but he's never going to return to command again. So his reputation because of just this um, retreat that was most likely perpetuated by one of his subordinates, uh, it's going to ruin his military career.
and he was one of the uh, the brightest stars in the the Continental Army at the beginning of the war. But that star is going to fall fast. Yeah, and uh, a good friend of ours, Christian McBurney, just wrote a book uh, called George Washington's Nemesis, which kind of goes over uh, not just Charles Lee at Monmouth, but also his capture um, and you know all the different. Uh, stories around what he was telling the British when he was uh, being captured, when he was captured in New York earlier. So uh, Lee is a very controversial figure. And if anyone's really interested in digging into Charles Lee, I would highly recommend Christian McBurney's book, also published by Savas. Um, so, and one thing I want to find, we got a lot of questions over here. I'll, I'll get to some of these in a second. Um, but one of the things I wanted to ask you, as you started, as you researched this book, I know you know a lot about Monmouth before you started writing it. What was the biggest surprise to you about the battle that you didn't really have your mind made up about before you wrote this book? Is there anything that you saw in your research that you didn't expect to see or something that surprised you? I think it was the whole situation surrounding Charles Lee. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to admit it. I was a fool for those myths that we always hear about that whole situation and doing more research into Lee. And I can always considered him as, oh, he was just, you know, a, a traitor and a jerk. Um, but doing more research into him, found out that he was definitely a capable officer, uh, and he probably got the, uh, you know, the, the blunt end of the stick at this point here in the war. And it, it's kind of, I'm not sympathetic towards Charles Lee. I'm partial to him. I do think he was belt, dealt a bad, a bad hand, uh, but it was mostly at his own doing because of how he actually acted after the battle itself. If he probably would have kept his mouth shut, he still would have right. been commanding a uh, a big portion of, of Washington's army. Yeah, he went up against the Washington, uh, as I call it, the goon squad. And Mark Malloy, if you're watching, just fell out of his chair. But Alexander Hamilton and John Lawrence were, uh, you know, Washington's hitmen that he was sending after people. And they definitely, uh, Charles Lee crossed them pretty significantly. So that ended pretty much his political and military career. Um, so today here in Virginia, and plus where you're watching and where you're talking, speaking to us from in Pennsylvania, it's 100,000 degrees. And we spoke before we got on here about this being the hottest day of the American Revolution. Um, how hot was it at the Battle of Monmouth that day? Um, there's a, a lot of evidence that it was well into the hundreds. Um, now this, yeah, maybe the hottest battle, uh, but throughout that entire march across New Jersey, at that time, uh, New Jersey summers like they are today are just awful. And um, there was multiple days where the temperatures were approaching a hundred into the hundreds uh, and lots of men in both armies are actually falling out uh, and dying of heat stroke during the march across New Jersey. Um, and it's, it's estimated that Clinton's army itself, not just from the battle, but from the entire trek across New Jersey could potentially lost upwards of 2000 men of the uh, 17,000 or so combatants that they had and many of them uh during the march and during the battle are from not from enemy bullets but from the sun okay think of you know the amount of equipment that these men are carrying the uniforms that they're wearing uh it's not all linen there is wool in there too so that's that's one thing a lot of people uh have probably heard about too when it comes to the battle mom at just how hot it was and all the men falling out from heat exhaustion or dying of heat stroke um so that 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 is too i i think that one thing um Monmouth is remembered for, not just Lee, but that excruciating heat that a lot of the men will write about after the battle. 
And, and one of the unique things about yourself is you have a personal connection to the story here. And uh, you and I discussed this as you were writing this book. Why don't you share with our viewers your personal family connection with Monmouth and, and this battle? Yeah, well, I do include it as a tour stop in my book because uh, the home of one of my relatives is still standing there um, just west of Freehold. And it uh, played a very important part um, in the campaign and the battle. My seventh great grandparents were William and Elizabeth Covenhoven. Uh, the Covenhovens were some of the first families to settle Monmouth County. Uh, and William and Elizabeth owned a, a home just southwest of Monmouth Courthouse. And on June 26, when the British Army arrives near the village, Henry Clinton is actually going to occupy my relative's house as his headquarters. And we have the deposition, which I include in my book, of my seventh great grandmother, Elizabeth, who was there at the time. Where her husband was, I have no idea. Uh, it's debated if he was just gone or if he was actually with one of the militia units nearby. Um, but Elizabeth will, will say after the battle that Henry Clinton had promised her that none of her possessions would be touched and her home would be safe. Well, by the end of the British occupation of her farm, uh, in this deposition, she says that she's essentially lost everything. Her furniture, what she wanted to have carted away so it could be stored somewhere in safekeeping. Uh, Henry Clinton assured her that it would be fine, so they had the cart brought back. The next morning, she finds the wagon completely empty. Everything's gone. Uh, all of her farm animals have been taken. Many of her cattle slaughtered. She tries to tell the British officers that if you kill those cows, guess what? You ain't getting any milk either. Uh, so they spare some of them. And at one point, um, she tries to get her, her furniture back. And one of Clinton's members of his military family, a staff officer, actually calls her a damned old rebel with one foot in the grave. Yeah. She, this is a 70-year-old woman at the time. And she's forced uh, to sleep on one of the cellar doors. And the British wouldn't even give her a blanket. Wow. Yeah. So that's that's my personal connection. And uh, I actually didn't know about that connection until we were I was just about to start writing this book. But I think that really kind of uh, even invigorated that uh, that interest in the battle and passion, too, because of that. And it's really cool to think, you know, that the commander in chief of all British forces in North America uh, during the war, he actually had a, a personal interaction with one of my relatives and used her home as his headquarters. And I can say for everyone watching that Billy is not biased against the British in the book. As you can see over his shoulder there, he has a flag. So <laughs> um, this is for French and Indian War purposes. I, 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 get it, I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. I got a few more questions about Monmouth, but you mentioned French Indian War. And one of your previous books was about the French Indian War. You want to tell us a little bit about your first book? Yeah. All right. There it is. Al <laughs> Lake George. Yep, my uh, first book, which came out in 2016, published by the History Press. It was on the September 1755 Battle of Lake George up in the Adirondack Mountains in New York. And uh, Lake George has a really, really uh, personal connection to me, especially when it comes to my, my uh, interest in history, because my family, being uh, a good New Jersey family, we used to go up to Lake George every summer to vacation. And Lake George and that entire area is just super rich with French and Indian War history and Revolutionary War history, uh, not far from Saratoga Battlefield. But at the southern end of Lake George sits Fort William Henry, which people probably all know from the last of the Mohicans, the fort that's depicted in there. And that is actually the first historic site that my father took me to 
when I was five years old. And that is where I can trace back to that, you know, interest and passion and history really beginning. Um, and then uh, after that, I, I just, I remember just always felt that it was just something cool about it. You know, you're a kid and you hear these stories of this different time and all these great heroes and, and these tragic events. It, it's something that just draws you in. It's, it's fiction, but it's not fiction. You know, these are the stories you think you would read in fiction books, but they're actually real. And then come fifth grade, I had my first American history class. That's where I first learned about the Civil War. And then my family took me here to Gettysburg. So that's where that interest began. I never thought, though, I'd be back here, uh, you know, at 28 years old and, and a licensed guide. It's funny where life can take you. But, um, yeah, this this book, it's it's not about Fort William Henry. There actually was a battle fought at Lake George two years prior to the siege of Fort William Henry. So in 1755, this battle fought predominantly by um, New England and New York provincials, not militiamen, they were, they were regular provincials. Um, they are gonna beat a combined Brit or French, Canadian and Native American army under the Baron de Tiscau, general in chief of all French forces in North America. And this is really, you can consider one of the first true American victories in our history because they did only have one regular British officer with that command. But this victory at the southern shore of the lake secures that ground for then Fort William Henry to be built. And after that battle, the French return to the northern end of Lake George where they will construct Fort Carrion, which becomes Fort Ticonderoga. Yeah, it's, we were up there last uh, November for our ERW annual trip and it was, I've never been before. It was, it's, it's gorgeous up there. So I would recommend if you go, go before November because everything shuts down in November. But yeah. we still had a great time. It's a pretty area, a story that I only knew, uh, you know, through Last of the Mohicans, obviously, about, about later action. But a great area, uh, very pretty up there as well. Um, we're finally getting the questions on, over here in the chat that I always expected about Molly Pitcher, uh, Mary Hayes. Um, I guess, yeah, I guess she's something important to come many out. Many different names, <laughs> many different names. One of the stories that um, some of us are taught in school, uh, a lot of us are taught the wrong story. So share with us a little bit about what you know about uh, the famous Molly Pitcher. Yeah, um, there's, there's several versions of the Molly Pitcher story. One of them is actually given to us by uh, Joseph Plum Martin, probably the most famous uh, private soldier's recollection to come out of the American Revolution. Um, but Molly Pitcher, she's from Pennsylvania, and her husband is serving with a Pennsylvania artillery company. And supposedly he goes down during the battle uh, in that excruciating heat with either heat stroke or a wound. Uh, and Molly Pitcher steps in and mans his post during this great artillery bombardment that is, uh, that is occurring uh, during the afternoon. Other stories have her um, going off to a nearby spring and getting um, pitchers of water. And bringing it to the men and in this terrible terrible heat you can think that is something that these dehydrated and thirsty men would definitely remember after the battle that's where she gets the name pitcher following the fighting um her real name was molly hayes um and it's cool because molly hayes is actually buried only 30 miles or so where from i'm currently sitting in carlisle pennsylvania and her monument that is now above her gravesite depicts her uh, in her full dress while holding um, a rammer or a cannon. And it was actually sculpted by J. Otto Schweitzer, who did a lot of the equestrian monuments that are here in Gettysburg. Hmm. Yeah, a That's very cool. famous uh, Philadelphia sculptor. 
Um, but Molly is commissioned an officer by George Washington uh, after her actions there. And, and basically driving around Pennsylvania and driving around New Jersey, uh, you'll see a million different Molly Pitcher highways and Molly Pitcher rest stops. Um, she is definitely one of the most important figures to come out of the American Revolution because I think she really uh, epitomizes and displays. We always, we always think about, you know, the men fighting this war, but there were women there on the front lines with these men too, as camp followers, as nurses, uh, and they are sacrificing just as much as, as a lot of the men are, whether it's on the, on the battlefield or on the home front with their husbands or sons away on the front lines. Is the, the, the place, in the, is, a, is her spot on the battlefield marked really well? And it's, it's, marked, well? It, it's marked in like a million different locations. That's where I was getting yeah, at. I've, it, seen, I've seen different yeah. stones. Yep, there's, there's a small stone that uh, is engraved or painted Molly Pitcher Spring, mm -hmm. uh, that if that was true, that was the spring that she was fetching water from, she would have been doing so behind British lines. <laughs> uh, there's another monument on top of Coombs Hill, which is uh, where the visitor center is today. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then there are interpretive signs depicting exactly where that Pennsylvania artillery company was that she would have been servicing those guns, firing some rounds into the Sutphin Orchard at the 42nd Regiment of Foot, the famous uh, Black Watch, Scottish. Right. Talk about Fort Ty. Yep. Um, so if I was to visit Monmouth, this is a very this is going to be a very hard question. I, I hate to answer this question when people ask me this about battlefields, but if I have a few, if I have two hours at Monmouth Battlefield, what are the places I need to see to understand the battle decently well? Um, definitely the visitor center when it's open. Start there. It's a fantastic visitor center with some fantastic interpretation on the inside, especially the maps. They really break down the battle by time frame, so you can get a full understanding of the chronology of the battle. And a lot of those maps are used in Fatal Sunday. Mm -hmm. as well so start there coombs hill uh which would have been at the right end of the continental line directly on the left flank of the british over uses an artillery platform with guns established there by nathaniel green so that's kind of a great overview of the fields in front of you um now the walking trails to get to some of the, the spots where the heavy fighting occurred like at the hedgerow which is where lee will launch his delaying action trying to hold the british back uh, you do need to walk out there to that spot. Same with Perrin Ridge. These are all walking trails, really, rather than like a national park. This is a state battlefield. So rather than a national park, there aren't many roads that take you through the battlefield. All those sites of significance, which isn't a bad thing because it keeps the landscape still to its uh, as close as it can be to its 1778 appearance. But the hedgerow is definitely a cool spot to fight because after the British do clear that, that is where Henry Clinton's main artillery line will be set up that will be dueling with the American con or the American artillery on Perrin Ridge. But if you want to see where uh, Molly Pitcher was, there's a trail that leads directly to that spot along Perrin Ridge. But I think probably one of the most uh, personal sites you can visit uh, is the old tenant meeting house. It's an original church about a mile to the west of the battlefield. And it was used as a hospital during and after the engagement. And it's also where mass grave is with a lot of the actual dead from Mammoth. Are buried, including Lieutenant Colonel Henry Monckton, who is a, a commander of one of the Grenadier units that fought there and was the highest ranking British general to or British officer to fall at the battle. Uh, and he is still buried here in America today, which is which is something to behold because he is captured and he'll die in that hospital from his wounds later on. So the follow up for that, 
best, not best, but your favorite place off the battlefield that relates to this battle. I know there are several places that um, I visited a few years ago that relate to Monmouth that aren't actually on the protected state park. Um, give me a few, give us a few ideas of some places people can go see that are off the park ground. Okay. Um, well, definitely the old uh, tenant meeting house, but uh, as well in this book, it doesn't just have tour stops for the battle itself, but also the entire campaign. So you can follow both the continental and the British armies advances from Valley Forge to Monmouth and from Philadelphia to Monmouth. And uh, the, along all those routes, take you to the original towns and see a lot of the buildings that would have witnessed the advances of both these armies and some of the skirmishes that will take place along the way as the uh, New Jersey militia and New Jersey Continentals are harassing Clinton's march. And I think one of the cooler spots uh, to visit would be uh, Crosswicks, New Jersey, where a skirmish will occur on June 23rd. Um, and this is a cool thing, cool battle because it involves John Graves Simcoe's Queens Rangers as they're trying to attack across the tiny creek uh, against the New Jersey uh, militia. And Henry Clinton himself will be involved in this skirmish, personally leading troops into the fray. This is the, the first of two times that we see during this campaign and battle uh, that Clinton is actually gonna put himself in immediate harm's way, as well as during the fighting at Monmouth while attacking the hedgerow, he's gonna be right up at the front as the general in chief of all British armies directing these men uh, into the fighting. So I think that's a cool spot because there is an old uh, meeting house there at Crosswicks that actually still has an American cannonball lodged in the side of it. So clear evidence of uh, the fighting that took there in this tiny skirmish um, on June 23rd before the Battle of Monmouth. Um, one of my last questions here to, to kind of wrap us up, the title, where did you get it from and why did you choose it? Okay, uh, yeah, Handsome Flogging, it was really difficult trying to come up with a title for this. Uh, but then I read this quote by Brigadier General William Erskine, who was with the British there at Monmouth. He commanded troops on the right wing of Clinton's army during the fighting. And after the battle, he is going to describe it as being a handsome flogging in regards to what the Americans did to the British. Uh, and even though this wasn't a crushing, decisive victory that ended the war, uh, the British do, do suffer uh, quite a bit of casualties. I mean, there's still contradicting evidence of how many men they actually lose. But as I mentioned earlier, during this campaign, they could potentially have lost upwards of 2,000 men in whole. But uh, I think it best described this battle because, uh, like I said at the beginning of the, uh, the conversation here, this was really one of the first times, especially for these British soldiers, that they're showing the back, their backs to the Americans. And after this long winter at Valley Forge, you know, this really is uh, the battle that makes the American army. They've proven without beyond a shadow of a doubt that they can stand toe to toe uh, with these professional British troops uh, and Hessian soldiers. Um, so I, I think that really, especially since it's a firsthand quote, it summed up the whole battle of Monmouth uh, in a nutshell. It's a great title. American perspective. No, it's a, it's a great title. Um, so to remind everybody where to purchase the book, SavasBD.com, and on July 31st, it will be released via Amazon, uh, Barnes Noble, Walmart, Target, all those sites will have it. It's $14.95. It's a great deal. If you want a signed copy, you just need to go up to Gettysburg, book Billy for a Gettysburg Battlefield Tour, and I'm sure you would sign a copy for anyone who booked you on the, on the Civil War Tour. Um, a few of us were up at Gettysburg a few weeks ago for the anniversary, and Billy did a great job showing us around the wheat field and um, 
in, in Culp's Hill. So very diverse in all the knowledge that you have. Um, anything else you want to share about the book before we sign off? Uh, I'd like to mention that there's some great appendixes. There are appendices oh, yes. written in this, yeah, including one by Rob Orison on uh, the old Charles Lee court-martial and, and mm -hmm. what becomes of Lee afterwards, as well as one on Baron von Steuben at Valley Forge by Travis Shaw, uh, another person involved with the RW, and then one on how the battlefield in the surrounding area was used as a civil war training ground and encampment. Yeah, um, it was known as Camp Vredenburg. And a lot of men from uh, the area, especially the 14th New Jersey Infantry, were actually trained on the Malmeth battlefield Very before cool. marching off uh, in the war between the states. And that's written yeah. by Kevin Pollock of uh, Emerging Civil War and sometimes contributor to uh, Emerging Rev War. That's very cool. Yes, we try to get Kevin to do Rev War occasionally. Um, so people are asking about book signings in Monmouth. Uh, I know, you know, with COVID right now, everything's kind of changed. But I know you've been talking to some of the friends, the friends group up there about possibly doing a book signing in the future. So, um, you know, if you do one, we'll post a date here on our, our Facebook page and we'll start posting on the blog about our, we used to have. Um, a whole page dedicated to our speaking engagements. But of course, since March, those have kind of gone gone by the wayside, but hopefully soon we'll, we'll be getting back to those um, because we have this book and also Phil Greenwald's Value Forge book should be out later this, later this summer, early fall. So look forward to that. Well, thank you, Billy. Uh, the book is great. Um, like I said, I read it a few, few months ago before it went to print. Uh, the maps are great. The, the understanding of the battle and the tour is fantastic. Um, so thank you. Next week, uh, we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, then we did Hamilton last week, and we had lots of different discussions about uh, the play Hamilton, and some people were breaking up uh, 1776. So our friend Kate Gruber and Liz Williams are going to run next Sunday night, 7 o'clock, ERW happy hour. And Kate just sent me the title, Sit Down, John, Let's Chat About 1776. So any of you all who remember 1776 or are big fans of that, um, it was during Rev War uh, you know, theater before it was cool, made cool by Hamilton. We'll be discussing that next week. So thanks again, Billy. Thank you all for watching, and we'll look forward to seeing everyone next Sunday night at 7 o'clock for ERW Happy Hour. Take care.